0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science in the City, the public gateway of the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceinthecity.org. Today is Friday, May 16th, 2008. I'm Alana Ranke. Popping corks and clinking glasses aside, there's some real science behind the celebratory staple we know as Champagne. Gerard Leger-Ballaire is an associate professor of physical sciences at the University of rennes champagne ardennes France and consultant for the champagne Moet et Chandon. In this podcast, you'll get a taste of his research into the bubbles behind this drink and find out what you missed at Science in the City's third and sold-out Science of Food event.
1: I would like obviously first to thank the New York Academy of Sciences for giving me the opportunity to give the talk in the wonderful city of New York. I will talk to you about some recent advances in the Science of Champagne bubbles. I'm a physicist, and my field of expertise is indeed the the, the bubbling behavior in carbonated beverages, obviously including the science of champagne and sparkling wine bubbles, since I am working in the heart of the champagne wine region in Reims. Before going into the heart of the matter, that's to say the bubbling and the foaming behavior, I'm talking a few words about the making of champagne. Obviously, I have no time to go into each and every step of the champagne making, because I have no time tonight. I'm just talking to you about one or two steps in order for you to understand the following of my talk. So first of all, a few words about the Champagne making process. Around mid-September in the Champagne wine region it's the period of harvest. So we have three noble grapes, Chardonnay, which is a white grape, and both dark grapes, Pinot Noir and uh, Pinot Meunier. So around mid-September, those grapes are vested and pressed to make a juice. So this juice is uh, put into open vats To undergo what we call a first alcoholic fermentation. Alcoholic fermentation is the key chemical reaction when we are talking about winemaking. Every wine elaborated through the world must undergo alcoholic fermentation. What's happening during the first alcoholic fermentation? The grape juice is put into open vasks and yeast is added so that the yeast ferments the sugar of the grape juice and transforms it into ethanol, the alcohol, and carbon dioxide molecules. So after this first alcoholic fermentation, champagne is still non-effervescent white wine with approximately 11% of alcohol. In making champagne and sparkling wine, this base wine, going through the first alcoholic fermentation, is then put into thick-walled bottles, which are sealed with a cap. So that we are in a hermetically closed medium. This base wine is promoted to go for a second alcoholic fermentation, which is called the prise de mousse. But this time, carbon dioxide molecules, which are evacuated from the yeast, cannot escape into the atmosphere, so that they are kept into the bottle, into the form of dissolved carbon dioxide molecules. So at the end of the prise de mousse, champagne is a white wine with approximately 12.5% of alcohol and with about 10 grams of dissolved carbon dioxide per bottle. And this is obviously hugely important for the following. There are a few other steps in champagne making. I have no time to talk about that. But just keep in mind that after the final croaking, when the bottles are ready to drink, the pressure inside the bottle, due to the presence of carbon dioxide molecules, rises up to five bars. That's to say five times the atmospheric pressure. This is a huge pressure. You would have to be under about 40 meters of water to feel the same pressure. And the champagne contains... Uh, approximately 10 grams of CO2 of carbon dioxide molecules per bottle this is also a huge quantity because this is equivalent to about 5 liters of gaseous carbon dioxide molecules, so 6 times the whole volume of the bottle, so this is a huge quantity of dissolved carbon dioxide molecules contained into the champagne, so champagne is ready to drink, and what's happening when you uncork the bottle, have you ever thought about the velocity of a cork popping out of the bottle Maybe not, I don't know. We have done some measurements in our lab a few years ago, and we have demonstrated that the typical velocity is around 40 miles per hour. <laughs> this is a quite important velocity, so be careful when encorking a bottle. If the cork goes into the eye, it, it can do some serious damage. What's happening also when you uncork your bottle, I'm sure that you have already noticed the presence of this white, small cloud of fog. What is it? Most of people believe that it is a cloud done with carbon dioxide molecules progressively escaping from the bottle. This is not the case. It's indeed a cloud of fog made of tiny water droplets. Why? Simply because when you uncork the bottle, you induce a drop of the pressure of the gas contained into the bottle, and this gas contains some minute traces of water vapor. But when you uncork the bottle, due to physico-chemical reason, you also induce a drop of the temperature of several tens of degrees. And due to physical chemical reason, the minute traces of vapor must immediately condensate into the form of tiny droplets. So this small cloud of fog is indeed done with tiny droplets of water. This is basically the same phenomenon which is responsible for the formation of clouds in the sky. Well, the drop of pressure when you uncork the bottle also has another consequence. It breaks what we call the thermodynamic equilibrium of dissolved CO2. It means that after uncorking the water, when you go from the five bars of the bottle to the atmospheric pressure, due also to physico-chemical reasons, the carbon dioxide molecules dissolved into the champagne cannot stay into the form of dissolved carbon dioxide molecules, and inevitably champagne must degaze. So champagne must evacuate almost five liters of dissolved CO2 contained in the champagne. When you serve flutes with a typical 25 centiliters uh, bottle of champagne, you can serve approximately Seven fruits. So it means that approximately 0.7 liter of CO2 must escape from your single fruit. How will they do to escape? There are two ways in which the CO2 molecules can escape from your fruit. They can do it directly from the champagne surface. This is absolutely invisible by necktie. CO2 directly go from this uh, little surface. You cannot see this phenomenon by an anectide, but it is huge in quantity. Approximately 80% of the CO2 molecules directly go through this way. This is a kind of evaporation. But obviously, the other 20% of CO2 molecules will escape into the form of bubbles, and this is much more interesting for the consumer, obviously. You can also get an idea of how many bubbles are promoted during the so-called effervescence process. When you divide the volume of CO2 that must escape into the form of bubbles by the average volume of champagne bubble of about 0.5 millimetres, you can find that approximately 2 millions of bubbles must escape from your food. This is obviously a huge number, so that the effervescence process will last up to several hours, obviously, if you do not drink your champagne, unless the bubbles will be formed into your stomach. So I suppose that everybody would agree with me if I said that the tasting of champagne or sparkling wine mainly differ from the tasting of still wine due to the presence of those myriad of rising bubbles. A question inevitably raises, where do all these bubbles come from? I propose you to put oneself into the place of a bubble, and we will chronologically follow each and every step of the champagne bubble's life. So first of all, I will talk to you about the bubble birth: how bubbles are born on the wall of the glass, In scientific terms, this is what we call the bubble nucleation process. Then I will talk to you about the bubble ascent, how do bubbles rise through the champagne. Thirdly, I will present you certainly the most spectacular step of the bubble's life, that's to say the bursting events at the champagne surface. Well, first of all, the bubble nucleation process. A few years ago in our lab in Reims, we have designed a special workbench in order to visualize in close-up the bubble nucleation process. So this is a, a shame of the workbench used to visualize the bubble nucleation process. It very simply associates high-speed video camera with a microscope objective. We needed a high-speed video camera because the process is very quick. And obviously, we also needed microscope objectives because the process is completely invisible by the next time. Here is photographic detail of the fluid emplacement, and we simply focused with the microscope objective at the base of all those tiny bubble trains that are rising on the glass wall. What did we see? A few years ago, we have demonstrated that effervescence is mainly promoted by what we call cellulose fibers. What are cellulose fibers? These are simply dust fibers. There are a lot of those dust particles floating in the air, and inevitably, some of them will stuck on the glass wall before pouring. Here is a very typical high-speed video of the process. So this cylindrical shape is indeed a cellulose fiber. You can see here the scale bar. So obviously this phenomenon is completely (laughs) invisible by the necktie. The geometrical property of the fiber is that there is a hollow cavity inside the fiber, and this is the little miracle of physics. When you pour the champagne into the flute... Champagne cannot completely invade the hollow cavity, so that every time a tiny hair pocket is trapped into the fiber, and due to physico-chemical reason, this tiny hair pocket is able to suck the carbon dioxide molecules around. So carbon dioxide molecules will diffuse into the tiny air pocket, make it grow until it reaches the tip of the fiber. And then also, a little miracle of physics, the gas pocket breaks into two pieces. One piece is a tiny bubble, And the other pieces, a gas pocket, which remains trapped inside the fiber so that the process can repeat itself until lack of dissolved gas. But because there is a huge quantity of CO2 to evacuate, remember that there is approximately 0.7 liters per single flute, so the process will last for a very long time, up to several hours after pouring the film gives you also the feeling that the process is very slow but indeed we have slowed down because approximately 10 bubbles are released every second, so this phenomenon is very quick but lasts very long time because there is a huge quantity of CO2 to evacuate from the fiber well, what we did also in, the, in our lab few ago, I will not go into many details <laughs> we, we, we have used the law of physics the law of diffusion to build the physical model in order to reproduce the natural process, and we did It's always interesting in physics to to build models because it's the only way to know which are the significant parameters responsible for the process. So we discovered that there are quite a huge collection of parameters involved in the process, but only really two of them are significant as concerns the kinetics of bubble release. First of all, the temperature. You know certainly that some consumers like to taste champagne very cold, at approximately 5 degrees Celsius, and some others prefer to taste it more at a wine-tasting temperature around 15 degrees. When you taste champagne, the higher the temperature of champagne, the higher the bubbling rate. If you taste the same champagne at 15 degrees Celsius, it will approximately have a bubbling rate increased by a factor of about 50% compared to if you taste it at 5 degrees. So the main parameter responsible for the bubbling rate is the temperature. And the other parameter responsible for the bubbling rate is what we call the viscosity. All champagnes have not the same viscosity. The viscosity is mainly linked with the presence in the champagne of sugar. Some champagnes are completely sugarless. They are called extra-brutes, and their viscosity is lower than the champagne very sweet, with a lot of sugar in them. And the bubbling rate is inversely correlated with the viscosity of the champagne. The higher the viscosity, the lower the bubbling rate. And this is visible even by the next eye. If you taste a very sweet champagne, the bubbling rate will be lower than if you taste champagne extra brute. Do not go into further details. There are obviously some other parameters, such as, for example, the ambient pressure. Two more important parameters as concerns the bubbling rate are the temperature and the viscosity. The most usual way... Of blowing bubbles from the fibres is clockwork regular. It means that the time interval between successive bubbles is exactly the same. As you can see on this tiny cellulose fibre, which blow bubbles with perfect clockwork regularity. But with time, at some nucleation site, this is the same nucleation site, there are some disturbances due to, to physical reasons, which make the bubbles blown by pairs. You can see this by the necktie. Maybe after my talk during the tasting, if you look carefully at your flute, you will be able to see such kind of disturbances. This is a bubble train writhing on the wall of a glass where the cellulose fibers blow bubble with clockwork regularity. And the same bubble train, uh, the same nucleation site, may sometimes disturb itself to blow bubble by pairs. And you can really see this by the necktie. This is not a rare phenomenon. I'm sure that if you look carefully, if you do not drink your champagne, Too quick, you will be able to see such kind of disturbances. Obviously, the physical processes behind these phenomena are very complex. These kind of disturbances are very characteristic of what we call chaotic processes. Chaotic processes are everywhere in nature, from the largest structures to the smallest structure, but it is really fun to realize that even in your champagne flute, you have some chaotic processes. We also have built a physical model. I didn't show it to you, but we have made a wonderful collaboration with a Brazilian team specialized with chaotic processes, and they have built a wonderful model. Indeed, there is a tiny interaction between the tiny gas pocket trapped inside the fiber and the bubble which is blown from the fiber. And this tiny interaction sometimes disturbs the system and force bubbles to be blown by per. This is the basic principle behind the disturbance. But obviously the complete model is hugely difficult to understand. This slide is just to show you the scale of the object we are uh, working with. This is the tip of a match compared with the size of the serious fiber blown bubble by per. And yes, we have also demonstrated that this bubbling system is the smallest chaotic bubbling system ever observed. And This was a very nice uh, scientific reason. Yes, a question. How do bubbles behave if champagne is served into plastic goblets? Maybe you have all, already drank champagne and served into plastic goblets. The bubbling behavior is not all the same as if it's served into glasses made with crystal or glass. Here is a photograph of a, <laughs> of a plastic goblet poured with champagne. And here is a photographic detail of the wall. As you can see, we have a lot of big bubbles growing stuck on the glass wall. It's very different from the bubbling process released from cellulose fiber. The fact that bubbles stuck on the glass wall and grow very big before detaching is due to the chemical properties of the plastic. The plastic is what we call hydrophobic. It means that the plastic much prefers the contact of the gas than the contact of the liquid. So when a, a bubble nucleates on a plastic wall, the plastic will keep as long as possible the contact with the bubble because plastic prefers to be close to the bubbles and close to the liquid. So this is the reason why bubbles are stuck and grow a very long time on the wall uh, of the glass. And the bubbling behavior is, is much less visually appealing than in the case of crystal f- fluid, of, of course. In the Champagne region, we call those big bubbles stuck on the glass wall "towards <laughs> eyes. It's very pejorative, and people do not like such a bubbling behavior. But be careful, because crystal and glass can also become hydrophobic, if they have minute traces of grease, if the glass is not perfectly clean, it can be locally hydrophobic and present such kind of bubbles called wood Well, the second part of my talk will be about what's happening with the bubble during the bubble rise. This is a typical high-speed photography of tiny bubble train. The photograph is already very instructive. You can see several phenomena. First of all, you can see that the bubbles are growing during ascent. This is very simply because they continue to feed with carbon dioxide molecules dissolved when they rise, carbon dioxide molecules continue to diffuse into the bubble and make them grow. you can also see that the spacing between successive bubbles increases as the bubble gets closer to the surface, why? this increasing spacing means that the bubbles can continuously accelerate they simply continuously accelerate because they grow inside and they experience a continuously growing buoyancy, this is the reason why they continuously accelerate during gases Here is a typical video of the phenomenon. We have circled one bubble with red, and you can clearly see that the bubble grow in size and accelerate during the rise. In the Champagne region, the size of the bubble is something very important because there is a saying which says that the smaller the bubble, the better the Champagne. Up to now, there has been no scientific correlation between the quality of the Champagne and the size of its bubbles, but Champagne makers much prefer to propose to consumer champagne with tiny bubbles than champagne with big bubbles because of this saying. The bubble volume expands by a factor of about 1 million during ascent. So this is a huge uh, augmentation of the bubble volume. So because of this saying, we have spent quite much time in order to depict and understand every parameter responsible for the, this process. So once again, we have built a physical model. Here is the bubble radius during ascent as a function of a collection of other parameters. I will not talk to you about each and every parameter responsible for the bubble growth, but I will mention only three of them. Very important. First of all, parameter h. h is very simply the travel distance. You can see that bubbles increase in size during their rise, so it is logical that the longer the travel distance, the larger the bubble size at the end of the rise. So the most significant parameter as concerns the bubble size is its travel distance, and obviously directly the size of the glass. If you drink champagne in long flutes, you will get bubbles much larger than if you drink the champagne in two cups, where the average travel distance is much lower. So first of all, the size of the glass, obviously. Then the concentration of carbon dioxide molecules. It means very logically, in the early moments of the tasting when you will have great values of the concentration of dissolved carbon dioxide molecules, you will have larger bubbles than a few minutes later, because CO2 continuously escapes from the medium. This is the reason why you will have the larger bubbles in the early moments of the tasting. On the third parameter, it's fun to talk about it. It's gravity acceleration. Obviously, on Earth, gravity acceleration is always the same. Eventually, in the near future, we will be able to taste champagne somewhere. Else. But I'm talking seriously. I know that American people will go back on the moon in 2020 and if astronauts taste champagne over there, because of a much reduced gravity on the moon, they will realize that the bubbles will be much grower, approximately almost by a factor two in size. Gravity plays a major role as concerns the bubble size. This model is valid also for any carbonate beverages. So where do you think that bubbles will be larger, in a typical champagne or in a typical beer? Obviously, if they are drink in the same glass. If you believe my equation, I hope that you believe my equation, <laughs> the bubbles will be larger in the beverage where the concentration of dissolved CO2 is higher. And due to the champagne-making process and the beer-making process, the concentration of CO2 is higher in champagne a factor of about 2 compared to that in the beer. So if you believe my equation, the bubbles must be larger in champagne than in beer. Here is a typical high-speed photograph of a bubble train in a typical beer. And here is a high-speed photograph of a bubble train in a typical champagne, at the same scale, obviously. So you can clearly see that the bubbles are actually much larger in the champagne than in the beer. But it is fun because every time I have this question, before talking about the model, most of my students say that we are sure that bubbles are bigger in beer than in champagne. My feeling is that in popular belief, the size of the bubble is inversely linked with the fame of the beverage. So because obviously, (laughs) I'm sure I'm talking seriously, in France for sure. And because obviously beer is a much more popular beverage than champagne, people are certain that beer bubbles must be larger than champagne bubbles. But you can see that it is absolutely not the case. Up to now, I have talked to you about the natural uh, bubble nucleation process, so the natural effervescence process. Now we're, I'm talking to you about what we call the artificial effervescence. Since a few years, glass makers also can propose to the consumer glasses that have been engraved at their bottom. There are two techniques for glass engravement. You can do sun blast impact or also laser beam impact. This is a typical laser beam impact done at the bottom of a champagne flute. This is approxi- a hole with uh, approximately a diameter of 0.5 millimeters. This is a bar of 100 micrometers. So very often now in the champagne region, glasses for tasting have a little ring-shaped structure at the bottom of the glass, which is done with several laser beam impacts. This phenomenon can promote effervescence simply because the scratches of the engravement can, as cellulose fibers do, they can entrap tiny hair pockets during the pouring process. And all those tiny hair pockets will promote effervescence. But the effervescence promoted by engraved glasses are completely different than the natural effervescence process. This is the bottom of a typical flute engraved at its bottom with little ring done with laser beam impact. And you can see that very clearly you have a kind of bubble column very vigorous arriving on the center of the glass. So this is evident to see that taste champagne in glasses engraved and then you taste champagne in glasses without engravement and with effervescence only promoted naturally by uh, the presence of cellulose fibers on the glass wall. Up to now, we also have looked at the aesthetic role of bubbles, but the role of bubbles in champagne and working wine tasting goes far beyond the sole esthetical point of view, as I am trying to convince you of in the following of the talk. Due to fluid mechanical reasons, the bottom of a writhing bubble is a zone of very low pressure. So this zone of very low pressure is able to attract a bit of fluid when rising. So because there is a huge quantity of bubbles rising at the same time in a fluid, this phenomenon is able to put in motion the whole liquid bulk, and this will have a huge consequence on the champagne tasting. Simply because the fact that bubbles can mix the medium, this will change Everything in comparison with the tasting of a steel wine. Instinctively, when you taste a steel wine, you swear your glass to put the food in motion in order to enhance the flavor release. This is completely instinctively. But in case of champagne and sparkling wine tasting, you do not have to do this, simply because the, the bubbles do the job for you. They mix the whole liquid medium... And this will have a huge consequence on the tasting. But also, we must be careful because if the champagne's effervescence is too vigorous and if champagne is too much mixed, the release of CO2 and flavor can be too important and this can eventually irritate the nose of the taster. This is the reason why, two years ago, we have made a very fruitful collaboration with a famous glassmaker called Arc International. We have worked for them in order to design, perfectly designed champagne glasses for the tasting, to promote exactly the good quantity of effervescence, the good shape of the glass. So we have tasted huge quantity of various glasses, showing various glass shape and various engravement conditions. So, because we are interested in the mixing process promoted by bubbles, our first goal was to get a kind of cartography of the flow patterns in the glasses we uh, used what we call the laser tomography technique. We did this very nice work in collaboration with the lab of food mechanics in Reims, and Professor Guillaume Polidori over there worked with me. Laser tomography technique is very easy to understand the principle behind the technique. With the laser source, we make a kind of laser sheet, a laser plane, which is materialized by these solid blue lines, and we cross the plane of symmetry of a glass with this laser sheet, But before pouring champagne into the glass, we have added some tiny plastic particles to the champagne. So these tiny particles of order of 100 micrometers in size have two main properties. They have the same density than the champagne, so that they do not sediment and they do not ride. They simply follow the food motion. And they also have big coefficient of reflectivity with regard to the laser light, so that when they cross the laser light, They diffuse the laser light and they become visible by the necktie. So if you make a long exposure time photography of the cross-section of the flute crossed by the laser light, you will be able to visualize the motion of the particles. But because the particles simply follow the fluid motion, you will be able to visualize very simply the motion of the champagne. Here are the flow patterns in the flute showing natural effervescence. We are five minutes after pouring the champagne into the flute. So this flute was not engraved, so the effervescence is only promoted by the presence of those tiny cellulose fibers stuck in the glass wall. So uh, what you can see as uh, blue streaks of light are the trajectory of the particles, but indeed the trajectory of the champagne motion. So you can clearly see that the whole bulk of the champagne is put in motion by the presence of effervescence. Here is the very layer detail of the flow process, so this is beautiful, you can see many vortices in the glass what you cannot see on the picture is the average velocity of the mixed flow pattern, in case of the flute showing natural effervescence the average velocity of the pattern is of a few millimeters per second Oh, certainly, certainly those vortices are for sure chaotic but what's happening in case of the flute engraved at its bottom this is a typical champagne flute with a little engravement at the bottom. So we have here bubble column riding, and this bubble column riding on the axis of symmetry of the flute is also able to put the whole liquid bulk in motion, but in a way completely different from the flute showing natural effervescence. You have here two very big vortices, which are on both sides of the central rising bubble column. You have here the detail of the vortices, so you have two big vortices close to the interface, Uh, what the photography do not show is the average velocity of the flow patterns. The average velocity of the flow patterns in this case is much higher than the average velocity of the patterns in the flute showing naturally-fervescent. Here in the early moments of tasting we have velocities of about one centimeter per second. So this is higher than in the case of the flute showing naturally-fervescent. Because we have a cylindrical symmetry around the axis of symmetry, the real three-dimensional fruit patterns is into this kind of donut structure which turns all around the axis of symmetry of the fruit. And we have here velocities much higher than in the case of the fruit showing natural effervescence. But as concerns uh, the tasting of the champagne, Remember that uh, I told to you that uh, the average velocity of the flow patterns is much lower in case of the flute showing naturally effervescence than in the case of the flute engraved at its bottom. Immediately the consequence is that the release of carbon dioxide molecules and the release of aromatic molecules is much higher in case of the flute engraved at its bottom than in the case of the flute showing naturally effervescence glass makers must be very careful because if the velocity is too high it can be really disturbing for the taster if he gets too high quantity of co2 and flavors at at the same time my feeling is that the good deal is probably better with something showing natural effervescence than with showing too much engraved at the bottom which makes the fruit move too quickly so here is the traditional cook some taster prefer The coupe than the flute. So, we have also tasted the flow patterns in the coupe. You have here a coupe engraved at its bottom. So, you can also see here the system of the two vortices, counter rotative vortices. But the case of the coupe is very interesting because you can clearly see that the whole liquid bulk cannot be put in motion by the effervescence. You have here at the periphery of the coupe very large zones which are almost at rest. So, it means that for the taster, those zones will almost not participate to the release of CO2 and to the release, obviously, of aromatic molecules. Only about half of the champagne volume will participate to the release of flavors. This is certainly a complete different sensation for the consumer to taste champagne in a coupe and to taste champagne in a flute. In my third part, I will present you now certainly the most spectacular aspect of the champagne bubbles life. We are talking about the bursting events at the liquid surface. Certainly all of you have already realized that after pouring champagne into your flute, your coupe, I don't know in which glass you prefer to taste it, but you can see that in the early moments of tasting, you have the presence of a myriad of tiny droplets above the champagne surface and we are going to see, really, the origin of these tiny droplets above the surface. First of all, what does a bubble look like at the champagne surface? A bubble is a bit like an iceberg. It's very tiny, so that most of the bubble volume remains below the champagne surface. Only a very tiny part of the bubble gets emerged, and this will have a huge consequence as concerns the bursting process. So the bubble is separated from the air with a tiny liquid film, which gets... Would get thinner with time, and when it reaches a critical thickness of a few hundreds of nanometers, the bubble will rupture and it will do this with this process. A tiny hole will appear into the thin liquid film, and this hole will very quickly expand to completely disintegrate the liquid film. This phenomenon is very quick. From frame one to frame four, you have only about tens of microseconds, so this is almost immediate. So, what's happening? obviously this situation is completely unstable as any liquid surface the champagne surface want to recover horizontality so how will champagne do to do this after the disintegration of of the thin liquid film you have a tiny hole in the interface and due to physical chemical reason you have zones of high pressure on the sides of the cavity and the zone of very low pressure at the bottom of the cavity so the fluid will be drawn very rapidly from the zone of high pressure to the zone of low pressure, so then the fluid will collide here and it will push the fluid upward into the form of a tiny liquid jet, very high-speed liquid jet with a velocity of several meters per second. So this jet will immediately break into several tiny droplets. So this is the origin of all those tiny droplets that you can see above the surface of champagne. Here is a very close-up view, high-speed photograph of the tiny liquid jet. Just before it breaks into tiny droplets, in physics, what we can see here is what we call Rayleigh plateau instability. So keep in mind that each champagne bursting bubble produces around five tiny champagne droplets. So in the early moments of tasting, you have between 200 and 400 bubbles, which collapses every second. It means that you have the production of more than 1,000 droplets. So you can imagine that this cloud of droplets can have a huge influence on champagne tasting simply because those tiny droplets will partly evaporate. All those bursting phenomena also enhance the flavor, the release of flavor from champagne much more than the release of flavor from a steel wine. Finally, I will show you a charming process which was observed a few years ago on the surface of champagne glasses. Here is a high-speed photograph of a champagne flute seen from the top and you can see if you look carefully at, at the top of these kind of bubble raft you can see that you have some strange structures where the bubbles are completely deformed into the form of tiny flower-shaped structures and indeed in the center of this structure, you have a bubble which is uh, bursting so here you have a bubble which is collapsing and due to physical chemical reasons this collapsing completely sucks the neighboring bubbles into the form of these tiny flower-shaped structures completely obviously and unfortunately invisible by the next eye. Final slide, just to show you a little mystery. This is the tiny liquid jet in case of a single champagne bubble collapsing. You can see that the liquid jet is completely and perfectly vertical in case of the single bubble collapsing. But in case of a bubble collapsing with three neighboring bubbles on the right side and with no neighboring bubble on the left side, you can see that the tiny liquid jet is deviated from vertical toward the bubble-free area. Obviously, there are no analogical consequences for the consumer, but this is a tiny mystery because even experts in the science of foam of bubbles do not manage to build a physical model in order to explain this deviation. So we're trying to do this in the near future, but I'm not sure that we will uh, realize that. So I think it was the last one. Maybe you have questions. question. Would the distance above sea level, let's say
0: in a city like Denver, which is about a mile above sea level, have any bearing on the size
1: and velocity of the bubbles as they use the word escape from the flute? There is um, indeed a rule of the ambient pressure. For example, in the mountain, the the consumer can begin to see this phenomenon at um, approximately uh, 1,500 meters. You can see that the bubbles are significantly larger when you are in the mountain because of the ambient pressure, which is decreasing.
0: I wanted to ask if there is a difference in velocity if you pour your champagne down the side of the flute as opposed to right
1: in the middle, you know, the... Yes, kind of when, you, when you serve champagne a bit like a beer, so you may flow it uh, down to the surface, quite good because you lose less CO2 than if you pour it directly on the bottom of the glass. You said that cellulose promotes the production of bubbles. So if you were to take champagne and put it in a clean room where there is no cellulose, will the bubbles still occur? If if you pour champagne in in a perfectly clean glass, you will have no formation of bubbles. We have done these experiments numerous times. We have washed the glass with uh, acid. So we are sure that we (laughs) removed every traces of cellulose fibers. And when champagne is poured into such a clean glass, you have a production of absolutely no bubbles. It looks like a steel wine.
0: So if you do that... And then you engrave the glass, you know, with lasers, let's say. Mm -hmm. In a controlled way, you could control bubble size, rate of bubble formation. Would that be a practical thing? To
1: to control the the bubble size, one way is to engrave the glasses at given heights, so that you can completely be sure about uh, the way that your bubbles will grow during ascent. In in case of natural uh, effervescence, you have fibers randomly distributed in the glass. Personally, I much prefer to taste champagne and sparkling wine in fruits showing natural effervescence with those tiny bubble trains, which are much more visually appealing than the big and vigorous effervescence promoted from the tiny engravings. The best way to do is to rinse champagne glasses with very hot water without soap, because soap molecules will have also an influence on the bubbling behavior by killing very quick the bubble at the surface. You have no deformation of this small bubble's color at the periphery of the glass if you wash your glasses with soap, so no soap, only very hot water, and then it's good to wipe the glasses with a towel to promote effervescence with tiny fibers that you will deposit by wiping uh, the glass with a towel. After studying champagne and looking and analyzing these bubbles, do you enjoy champagne more or less? You're right, it, it, uh, it, it's my work, so uh, I do not eat champagne now, after 10 years of work, like before. It's pleasure. I like to drink champagne, but a bit less than before. <laughs> Thanks for your attention, and, just, and enjoy your, your tasting. Hi,
0: I'm Eric, and I'm an anesthesiologist. I'd say the coolest thing I learned was the, the origin of the bubbles themselves. I had no idea that the cellulose fibers were the source of the bubbles. <laughs> My name is Tom Metzger. I'm a graduate student at Cornell University Med School here in New York. I thought the lecture was really informative and nice that he both took a serious approach to the science of uh, the formation of bubbles in Champagne, but also brought a lighter note and made it very accessible to you know non-scientists, non-physicists, non-physical chemists. So um, I thought that was a really well-tailored presentation. My name is Clifford Pickett. I'm a vice president of a environmental and structural testing lab in Queens. Probably the most interesting thing was just to hear so much science uh, in relation to something that you kind of take for granted, you know, and just drink. My name is Jessica Brand. I'm an olfactory neurobiologist at Columbia, and we had a recent discovery that different mouse lines and different humans had different sensitivity to carbon dioxide. So I was really curious about the effervescence and how quickly the bubbles rose and how that would affect the chemosensation ability in different species to detect the CO2. I really like the Science in the Food series because I do do olfactory research. I'm always interested in the combination of taste and smell and how that influences our taste in the kinds of food we eat. I've been to the science of uh, coffee, the science of chocolate, now the science of champagne. And next month, I'll be at the Science of Scotch. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you thought about this podcast and other Science in the City podcasts. Email your comments to scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Leave a voicemail at 212. 212- 298-8654 or send your feedback snail mail to Science in the City Podcast care of the New York Academy of Sciences 7 World Trade Center 250 Greenwich Street on the 40th floor New York, New York 10007 To find out more about the intersection of science and culture in New York City, visit our website at scienceinthecity.org See you next week!